The Story of Arnold Paula. Dark hills loomed up over the small village and evening was falling as Flukinger rode in with his men. There was snow on the ground and the January wind was bitter and he was glad of his thick military jacket. His fellow officers, both the other two medical officers and the lieutenant colonel, were all billeted in various homes around the village as no single residence was especially large. Arrangements had been made for him to stay with the oldest Heiduk in the village, a figure of considerable local social standing, he had been told. The man had been an outlaw for years, fighting the Ottomans with banditry and whatever other unofficial methods they could think of, until the Austrian Empire had taken over their country and they joined a new and more official Heiduk militia in the year of our Lord, 1718. Jowitzer was the man's name, and he turned out to be a little younger than Flukinger had expected. Being a Heiduk was probably not a career that came with a good life expectancy. Jorwitz's home was fairly large and well warmed by a good-sized fire. His wife and children greeted Flukinger with good grace and did not seem too put out by having to find a bed and food for him. The two little boys ran around the room showing off their toys and their small tools while Jorwitz's stepdaughter, Stanika, sat and made polite conversation. She was grieving the death of her fiancé, Miloa, another Heiduk and son of a Heiduk, it quickly became clear that nearly all the men in the village had, at one time or another, been Hajduks. Stanika did not mention how her fiancé had died, and Flukinger did not like to ask. He had been going over recent reports from the village, and it looked like some kind of disease was sweeping through the population. The reports were vague on the details, but a number of people seemed to have got sick and died after about three days. Some were new mothers and small babies, and there was a young girl and an older woman, the first victim, if he remembered correctly, but two male teenagers had also died, as well as Miloa. They were healthy young men who might have been expected to have many years left to them. The food was good. The soup was warming, Stanika and her mother had made Sama cabbage rolls, especially for Flukinger's visit, and the local wine was excellent. The effect of coming in from the bitter cold and filling up with warming food by a roaring fire was making Flukinger feel really quite sleepy, and he wondered if he could get away with just going to bed. But that was not going to happen for a while yet. Jowitzer had a story to tell him. The two little boys were sent to bed with their mother, and Jowitzer took a seat opposite Flukinger by the fire. Stanika sat nearby and occasionally topped up their wine or brought small nibbles of bread or pastry to keep them going. Otherwise, she seemed to be listening as intently as Flukinger, though she must have heard it all before. Well, said Jorwitzer, drawing breath and placing both hands on his knees in preparation to tell his tale. Here's what happened. I knew Arnold, Jorwitzer began. We were Hyducks together, resisting the Turks. I didn't like him much. He was a bit of a grump and a whinger, and he was obsessively paranoid about vampires. We fought the Turks together in Gossawa, and he was absolutely convinced that he was being stalked by a Turkish vampire. We all tried to tell him that was ridiculous, and that he should be more worried about attacks from living Turks, but he was insistent. It was a man he had killed in one of our attacks. This monster stalked him at night, he said, wanting to avenge its own death. He was so afraid of it, he dug up the body and ate earth from the grave. He ate the dirt, interrupted Flukinger. Why? To protect himself from the vampire, said Jowitzer, as if this should have been obvious. 
When he dug up the body, he said he could tell it was clearly a vampire because it was fresh and full of blood, and he also drew some of the blood and smeared it onto himself, also to protect himself. I thought drinking the blood of a vampire was how a person became a vampire, questioned Flukinger in confusion. Some say so, agreed Jowitzer, but others think that painting themselves with the blood of a vampire will protect them. Most people become vampires because the vampire has drunk from them, or because he has attacked or infected them, or because their bodies have been eaten by animals. Right, said Flukinger, a bit confused but too tired to press the issue. It certainly sounds as if it did not protect Paula. Apparently not, Jowitzer agreed. Anyway, we all thought he was losing his mind, but it seems he really was being hunted by this vampire all along. We all came home eventually, and Arnold stopped talking about it quite so much, and we all thought that would be the end of the matter, but we were very wrong. Five years ago, Arnold was killed when he fell from a hay wagon and broke his neck. He was buried properly and normally, but about 20 days later, people started saying they had seen him. Not just seen him, he had been stalking and pestering, and even physically attacking people. Four people were hurt so badly he actually killed them. How? asked Flukinger, making notes in his medical journal. How did he kill them? Jowitzer shrugged. I believe he assaulted them in some way. I did not see their bodies at first, not until later. He seemed to be going around all the people in the village that he knew and hitting them, throttling them, or drinking their blood. He even attacked and drank the blood of the farmer's cattle. This went on for another 20 days or so, until it was decided enough was enough. Our local Hadnack had seen this type of thing before, he said, and he knew what to do. So on his advice, 40 days after his death, we went to Arnold's grave and dug him up. Jowitzer shuddered and motioned to Stanica to refill his wine. She moved over to Flukinger and did the same for him without being asked. The body was completely whole, not decayed at all, Jowitzer said quietly. He looked like he was sleeping but there was blood everywhere. As we moved the body, fresh blood flowed from his ears, his nose, his mouth, even from his eyes. The shirt he was wearing, the shroud he was wrapped in, the coffin itself, all were full of blood. His nails were still growing. The old toenails and fingernails had fallen off along with the skin of his fingers and toes, and fresh nails had grown in their place. All of that I could have coped with, accepted, even wondered if there was some other explanation. But then... Jowitzer swallowed and took another gulp of wine. Then the Hadnack staked him, he said. He drove a wooden stake right through Arnold's heart, as is always done in cases of suspected vampirism. As soon as the stake hit the body, more fresh blood gushed from the wound, and Arnold gave out a great groan. A terrible, inhuman moaning that echoed all through the graveyard as the stake was pushed ever more firmly into his flesh. Bloody hell, Jowitzer! exclaimed Flukinger. Indeed, said Jowitzer. We burned the body to ashes that same day, just to make sure, and we did the same to the four people he had killed, since those killed by vampires must become vampires themselves. And we thought we were safe. Until recently, prompted Flukinger, as Jowitzer had fallen silent. The older man nodded. We missed something, he said. Flukinger waited for him to elaborate, 
but it was Stanica who offered the explanation. It was the cattle, she said, the cattle whose blood Arnold had drunk. They were eventually slaughtered in the normal way. No one wanted to eat their meat, but the farmer started selling it off cheaply and some people were desperate enough to buy it. They ate the flesh of vampire cattle, and so now they are vampires too, and they are spreading it to all their own friends and family. Vampires attack their loved ones more often than anyone else, you know. Sixteen people have died in the village in the past three months, and there are reports of disturbances at night. Strange sounds, unexplained knockings, mysterious shadows. Do those sixteen people include your fiancé? asked Flukinger gently. She nodded yes. Flukinger drained his wine and stood up, a little unsteadily. "'Thank you for sharing all that with me,' he said politely. "'It is certainly a most unusual set of circumstances.' "'Just you wait, Doctor,' said Jowitzer. "'We were all sceptical too, back in Gossawa, "'when Arnold was telling everyone he was the victim of a vampire "'and no one believed him. "'But just you wait.' "'And with that, Flukinger went to bed.' He was abruptly awoken on the stroke of midnight by a blood-curdling scream coming from the next room. It was Stanica. She was sitting bolt upright in her bed, shaking so much the blanket had fallen to the floor. Her mother wrapped her in her arms and stroked her back as she gasped out what had happened in a hoarse voice. It was Miloa, she said through her tears. But it wasn't the real him. It wasn't the kind Miloa, not the man I loved. It was a monster in the shape of Miloa. He stalked across the room to my bed. At first I didn't move because I was overjoyed to see him. I had this tiny hope he was somehow not dead after all. Then he got closer and I saw his pale skin and his empty dead eyes and I knew it wasn't really my Miloa at all. It was a monstrous mockery of him. But by then I was too terrified to move. She broke down sobbing for a few moments. He came up to me and he... He put his hands around my neck and throttled me. I tried to cry out, but I couldn't, and then I felt this this terrible pain in my chest. She gasped as if gasping for air. It's still there. It still hurts, Mama. She buried her face in her mother's chest and sobbed. Her mother murmured reassuringly, It's all right. It's all all right. You'll be all right, into her hair. But Flukinger looked at Jorwitzer over their heads and saw the same grim concern to match his own. Whether a vampire was involved or not, Stanica's symptoms did not sound promising. Flukinger offered all his medical expertise to try to help, and he did not leave Jowitz's house for three days. But to his disappointment, his initial fears were well-founded, and Stanica died on the third day. Flukinger offered to move to alternative lodgings, to leave the grieving family in peace, but Jowitzer told him their custom was to bury the deceased as soon as possible and not to worry. The very next morning, Flukinger found himself walking into the local Orthodox church for her funeral. He could hear a male voice rising and falling in a chant that was both solemn and melodic, and a sort of wheat-based pudding with traces of honey in it was being served from a small table at the front of the church. He was told to take a small piece of bread as well. As he walked in, at first he could see almost nothing, but as his eyes adjusted from the bright January sunshine outside to the candlelit dark of the interior, The lavish decoration he could see all around him almost took his breath away. Flukinger had not expected it to look so different. He had been in a few Protestant churches, and he knew how different they were to what he was used to, and how much plainer than his own Roman Catholic churches they tended to be. 
but this was decoration on another level entirely. Every inch of space was covered in intricately painted images of saints against dark blue or gold backgrounds, and there were gold-backed icons scattered throughout as well. There were fluted pillars towards the front, and a lot of the light came from a huge chandelier hanging from the centre of the ceiling, filled with candles. The service was long, and conducted entirely in a church Slavonic dialect that Flukinger could not understand. The graveyard spread out around the church, many of the stones in the elaborate design of the Orthodox cross. The bare stones disappearing off across the grass were a sharp contrast to the rich decoration inside. Wine was sprinkled over the fresh funeral mound, making Flukinger feel almost like he was in a Greek play. Afterwards, not wanting to disturb the family, Flukinger took himself for a walk around the graveyard. He couldn't help noticing that some of the more recent graves, those which did not yet have stones put up, did not look as neat as he had expected. Despite the hard frost and icy ground, the earth over the top of several of them appeared to have been disturbed. One especially, where a small temporary marker noted that a mother and her newborn child had been buried together, appeared to have been almost chewed up, the soil kicked all over the place. Jowitzer left his distraught wife embracing their two sons and came over to talk to Flukinger. It is well known that the family of vampires are at the greatest risk of becoming vampires themselves, he said quietly. The family of vampires, replied Flukinger. Stanika was killed by a vampire, Jowitzer explained patiently, so she will surely become a vampire in her turn. We are all in the gravest danger. He did not take his eyes off his wife and sons while he spoke. Flukinger poked the piled-up earth of the grave he was standing by with his foot. Then we need to deal with this problem, he said, privately thinking to himself that if he could somehow convince these people that he had solved their vampire problem, maybe they would be better equipped to fight the disease that was obviously sweeping through their community. He squinted up at the hazy winter sun above them. We will come back as soon as we can this afternoon, while we still have the light. Bring shovels. Of course, luck being what it is, by the afternoon the sun had disappeared behind a wall of grey cloud that made the whole village feel oppressed and oppressive. But there was still enough light for what they needed to do, so Flukinger gathered together his two fellow medical officers and their lieutenant colonel, while Jowitzer brought half a dozen more of the senior Hyduks in the village. All came with shovels and picks to open up all of the graves that had been disturbed, while Flukinger and his colleagues brought the tools of their own medical trade as well. They came to Stanika first, and of course she was completely undecayed, as was to be expected. As the men moved the body out of its fresh grave once more, fresh blood flowed from the nose in a great torrent. Her face had taken on a strange reddish colour, and when the three doctors opened up the body, more blood flowed from the chest cavity as well. On her neck, just under her ear, was a bloodshot blue mark about the length of a finger. That is where he throttled her, said Jowitzer gravely gently brushing the hair from her forehead. He looked up at Flukinger. How do you explain that, Doctor? he asked, knowing his guest's scepticism. I can't, Flukinger said honestly. They went to her late fiancé Miloa next. His body too was complete and entirely undecayed. This must be another recent death, exclaimed one of Flukinger's medical colleagues. I can assure you it is not, said Jowitzer. The young man has been buried for six weeks, we buried him ourselves. He gestured to the other Hyducks and they all affirmed it loudly. The body did not look like it had been buried for six weeks, 
but it did not look entirely normal for a living person either. The skin had fallen off his hands and feet along with the nails, but fresh nails and skin had grown in their place, and when Flukinger and his colleagues opened up the body, they found blood gushing out of the chest cavity. The expression on the face was unsettling too. The eyes had either not been closed or had opened themselves, and the dead man seemed to stare out at them fiercely, even angrily. After that, they started to go around all the disturbed graves. Although they found four bodies in three of the disturbed graves, one for a mother and child together, which had decomposed as expected, they found another seven bodies in six graves in the same condition, undecayed with fresh blood flowing throughout the body. The tally went up to nine bodies in seven graves when they came to the very disturbed site Flukinger had noticed earlier. The child was not buried properly, said one of the other Hyducks sadly, and the animals got to it. The mother knew that meant the child must become a vampire, and she knew she was dying too. She had not been able to deliver the placenta. So she painted herself with the blood of a vampire to protect herself. But clearly, it did not work. It was a grim sight that met Flukinger's eyes when that grave was opened, and the medical examination was the most unpleasant of them all. But he could see that both bodies were in the same sort of state that the Hyducks insisted marked them out as vampires and by this point, he found he had no grounds on which to disagree. "'Where did all this come from?' he asked, sitting back and wiping his brow, turning his eyes away from the mess before him. "'And where did she get the blood of a vampire, anyway?' "'From here,' replied Jowitza, standing by the last disturbed grave. Militza, a well-respected grandmother in our village. He and some of the others had already opened the grave, and there, lying in it, was yet another undecayed body, this time of a woman who looked to be about 60 years old. She has fed better in death than in life, observed one of the other Hyducks. She was always bone-thin, poor woman, and struggling for food. But look at her now! It was true. The body was plump and the skin rosy. When the doctors came over, Flukinger was by this point unsurprised to find a pool of liquid blood in the chest cavity. Realisation dawned as Flukinger watched the Hyducks exclaim over the dead woman's apparently healthy appetite. She ate the cattle, he said. The cattle Arnold Paula attacked and drank from. She resurrected Paula's old curse, or she caught the infection through the meat. Yowitzer nodded. No one else would touch that meat, but she was desperate, and it was being sold off cheap, he said. He went over to the cart they had used to bring over their tools and produced an axe. The days are short, he said, and we're losing the light. And with that, he raised the axe and brought it down sharply on the old woman, cutting off her head at the neck with one blow. Blood gushed everywhere, and Flukinger could have sworn he saw the eyes start open as the head rolled away and came to a stop. The other men grunted their approval and more axes appeared. While Flukinger and his colleagues reburied the decayed bodies, the Hyducks went around the apparent vampires one by one and removed their heads. A pile was made of the heads and bodies together, and the whole lot was then set alight. As the sun set, Flukinger stood by the pyre and allowed it to warm him, ignoring the grim smell of burning human flesh in the interest of staving off the winter chill. It must have been an infection, he muttered to his colleagues, still trying to convince himself. She must have eaten infected meat. The cattle carried some disease. Yes, that, that is the sensible explanation. "'What will you report back, sir?' asked one of the more junior officers. Flukinger stood up tall and straightened his shoulders. 
everything, he said. Whatever the explanation, whatever the cause, we report everything, just as we have seen it. That is our duty. Our superiors can make of it what they will. The priest appeared behind them, offering silent support in the form of some incense from the church, which he quietly lit to combat the smell. Is it over now? Flukinger asked Jowitzer. It's over, the old Hyduk said confidently. No one else will eat the tainted meat, and the cows have been burned as well. We have destroyed all the vampires. My family are safe. Flukinger jumped as a swift shadow darted past his ear, almost but not quite touching him, and whipped away over the top of the fire. What was that? he exclaimed. Oh, nothing, said Jowitzer calmly. Just a bat. The end. Hello, I'm Juliet Harrison. Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories with episodes every two months. I say ghost stories, but of course we also look at everything ghost adjacent. So we've already had episodes on a UFO and a werewolf um, and quite a few on revenants that are somewhere between ghosts and zombies. Uh, But this is the first time I have tackled vampires, um, partly because vampires are largely an early modern... um, phenomenon's not quite the right word, but an early modern story. Um, There are similar stories and similar creatures from uh, ancient Greece and Rome, but the specificness of what we now call a vampire uh, goes back to more or less the early modern period. Um, And I go up to about 1815, that's my sort of chosen cut-off point, uh, for the podcast, combination of 1815 for the Battle of Waterloo and the following year, 1816, uh, we get Polidori's story, The Vampire, and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which are kind of the beginning of horror literature as we know it. But my specialist area is uh, ancient Rome, so I don't tend to cover early modern stories as often as I do ancient Greek and Roman stories because I'm more familiar with them. So it's taken me a little while to get around to vampires, but here we are. So this is a very, very famous early modern vampire case, and it is a report by Johannes Flukinger, an Austrian army medical officer who led an investigation into a vampire outbreak that had happened five years earlier and then had come back uh, in the Serbian village of Medvegia. And they sent people to investigate this type of thing mainly to rule out plague. Um, The Austrian authorities wanted to make sure there wasn't some dire plague starting uh, in these villages, very sensibly. Uh, So this report was submitted in January of 1732. Now, I have done my best with the names and the pronunciation. Um, I speak German and French and Greek, um, but I don't speak any Slavic languages. So I did my best to try and find out how I should be pronouncing these names. Um, Obviously, do correct me if I've got them wrong, but I I did try. Apologies if I've not pronounced them quite correctly. There is some variation in the spelling of the names as well. I've gone for the commonly seen Arnold Powler for the the kind of main vampire in the story, or the first vampire in the story. The first one with a name, anyway. Um, you also get Arnold and variations on the spelling of the surname. In turning this uh, official military report into a story, I have conflated some of the characters a little and moved some of the timing slightly. 
So as far as I can tell, Stanica was not married to Miloa. And in fact, there seemed to be two Miloas, possibly. Um, both young men buried in the graveyard. There may Stanica, sometimes Stanoika. Um, I've also deliberately moved her death, uh, which in Flukinger's report had happened a couple of weeks beforehand. Um, but I wanted him to witness it. I wanted him to be there for this incident where she sits up in the middle of the night and screams and says Maloa's been throttling her. So um, I shifted her death slightly. Uh, and there are some inconsistencies in the original, which I've tried to iron out where I could. So the spelling of her name, whether she's the stepdaughter of the oldest Hyduk in the village or the wife of Miloa or, or both, which is obviously possible. Um, also, whether it was sheep or cows that uh, Arnold Paula attacked and that were then later, five years later, eaten. Um, so sheep at one point and then cattle at another point. I also deliberately didn't describe in much detail the uh, Im improper or too hasty burial of the newborn baby who is then half eaten by animals uh, mainly because that was just way too unpleasant um, so I sort of skipped over that there's there's horror that's fun and Halloweeny and ooh gory exciting and then there's just plain nasty um, and I've tried to go for Halloweeny fun spooky horror and not just horribleness um, Flukinger's report actually includes four pairs of mothers and babies who have died within a short space of each other, including the mother who the placenta was still inside the uterus. And Flukinger reports that when he dug up and examined the body. Um, some of them, it wasn't immediately after birth, but it was a very young baby and presumably a breastfeeding mother. And it's a pretty grim reminder of how dangerous childbirth and infancy were for both the baby and the mother um, in pre-industrial societies just due to um, lack of clean conditions, lack of medical knowledge, um, lack of modern medicine, essentially. I added the detail about Arnold having killed the Turkish vampire. So in the report, he was convinced that he was being kind of stalked by a Turkish vampire. I added the the idea that he had killed this person in the first place, just as an explanation. <laughs> Otherwise... A Turkish vampire randomly attached itself to this Serbian Hyduk for no reason. The bit about eating the earth from the grave is in the original report. I did not make that up. I don't think I would have made that up. Um, that is, according to uh, Flukinger's report, what Paola did when he thought he was being stalked by a vampire. The exclamation, bloody hell, yo, it's uh, is just a reference to the Uncanny podcast on BBC Sounds, uh, which is presented by Danny Robbins, and is a great podcast on um, modern paranormal experiences. Um, so I just put that reference in there to uh, a very famous case where Danny Robbins says, bloody hell, Ken, in response to somebody's story. I also added the bat at the end. I just needed some kind of ending other than, and then we chopped off the heads and burned their bodies, the end. Um, so that that was me. Uh, and I put a bit of detail on Miloa's body. Um, the bits with the eyes basically are me. Um, staring eyes, the old woman's eyes opening, those are bits I've added. Pretty much everything else is in the original. So just about everything in there I've taken directly from Flukinger's report. Just tiny bits of added detail. Uh, so those are the main ones I can think of, the bat and the eyes. Um, 
just to make a bit more of a story of it, to make it a bit more exciting and dramatic and to add something with a little bit of variation other than, and then we dug up another body and it also had blood in the chest. And then we dug up another body and it also had blood in the chest, which is kind of how the report reads. In giving the story a bit more of a kind of uh, rounded feeling setting, I also looked up Serbian food on wonderlust.co.uk, um, which is where I got the Sama cabbage rolls from, often made for special occasions and in the winter. The Gito served at the funeral, uh, I learned about from an article on academia.edu about funeral customs as well as the singing the Opello at Serbian funerals. Hajduks were men who fought against the Ottomans when Serbia was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. And then when the Habsburg Empire took over, it's the Austrian Empire, they pressed the Hajduks into service in the Serbian militia from 1718 to 1739 to defend against the Ottomans. So they were still fighting the Ottomans, but now as a formal part of the Austrian military rather than um, as guerrilla fighters or resistance fighters. And Paula and the oldest Heideck of the village, who is referred to several times, albeit not by name, Jowitza is the stepfather of Stanica, and I've conflated him with the oldest Heideck in the village, who gets consistently referred to in this story, uh, both appear to have been members of this militia, as far as I can tell. Stephen Gordon and Eric Butler have both suggested there's a political element to what's going on here. Paola was supposedly infected by a vampire while living in Turkish Serbia. So there's an element of this continued fight against the Turks, even though this part of Serbia is now part of the Habsburg Empire at this point in time. Um, but this idea of ongoing enmity with the Turks that apparently extends even beyond death in some cases. So obviously, as I mentioned, this isn't technically a ghost story. Um, it is uh, another type of undead and there's quite a lot of crossover between various types of undead revenants. So a ghost, usually in English, we would be referring to a spirit without a body. Usually, not always. <laughs> but generally speaking, we tend to use ghost when we mean something insubstantial and incorporeal. Um, we tend to use revenant for the various types of undead that are still inhabiting the body. So that would be a vampire, a zombie, a Scandinavian drauger, anything where the, the corpse is running around. And in some cases, like a zombie, it might be a rotting corpse. And in other cases, uh, like a vampire, it might be still in a pretty good state and looking healthy and mostly alive. And in a lot of cases, the texts themselves don't even clearly define them apart from each other, especially the further back you go. Um, I think I mentioned this in the previous episode about the Scandinavian material that a lot of the time um, earlier texts really aren't terribly specific about exactly what type of undead monster they're talking about. Um, and it's as you get later and really into the kind of Victorian and the modern period when we start wanting to categorise everything, that you start to get clearer categories um, emerging between kind of vampire, ghost and so on. So in modern English as generally used, a vampire is a corpse that physically leaves the grave and drinks the blood of living people to sustain itself. And I think usually common English language usage would be that vampires drink blood. Um, if it's not drinking blood, usually in English we'd call it a zombie or a revenant or something else. Brian Cooper identifies the vampire primarily as blood drinking. He says it can be a ghost or a living ghost. Now that's another thing altogether. I haven't covered 
um, living ghosts on the podcast yet. I'm sure I will at some point. But anyway, blood drinking vampires, strong connection. David Keyworth identifies the blood drinking as the distinguishing feature of 18th century vampires. So the blood drinking is the main thing that separates out the vampire from the various other types of revenant. The vampire is usually monstrous, uh, often monstrous, though some early modern Greek stories have them coming back to live with their wives. Um, So they're not always obviously monstrous. Uh, They usually are. Revenant is a fairly general term that we can use to mean all of these various things, including ancient stories, like there's a similar ancient story about Philinion, who is a revenant. Uh, This was the subject of a previous episode that I did on the podcast. And she is attractive and has sex with a guy visiting her parents um, and clearly is not obviously visually monstrous, as well as clearly being very corporeal. Uh, But I would tend to describe her as a a revenant, uh, and she certainly doesn't drink anybody's blood. Uh, Katerina Wilson uh, says the word vampire came into use in French, English, German and Latin via the Pope and the Catholic Church in reference to the folklore of Poland, Russia and Macedonia. And then what scholars have referred to as a vampire epidemic in Serbia. So the word the Slavic languages used before this period seemed to be variations of upir, so Polish upior, Ukrainian upir. The Slavic vukodlak now means vampire, but in the past meant werewolf. Romanian vyukolak once meant vampire or werewolf, but now means an abandoned, unbaptized infant spirit. So quite a lot of these words have changed usage over time as well. Uh, The Greek virkulakas is very similar. They leave their graves and sometimes drink blood. Um, So they can overlap with vampires, um, if they're blood drinking, obviously, especially. They tend to do other things as well. (laughs) The Vrikulakas gets up to all sorts of mischief, um, rather than being primarily concentrated on the blood drinking. But you could include those um, as a type of vampire too. And uh, as I mentioned, the Norse Draugr and related creatures like the Trigonga, the revenants and trolls are not dissimilar as well. So as we've seen, there have been lots of stories of revenants um, from earlier periods, and some of them were quite similar to vampires. Uh, Another example, William of Newburgh in 1196 described a revenant who, when they were exhumed, was swollen, oozed fresh blood, and he described as like a leech that sucked blood. But the idea of the modern vampire um, becomes particularly popular in the 18th century and is partly connected to this vampire epidemic um, that was apparently happening in Serbia. So in 1718, in the Peace of Pasarovic's peace treaty, Serbia and Wallachia were taken over by Austria uh, from the Ottoman Empire. So the Turkish Ottoman Empire had been occupying them for some time. Austrian occupying forces were there until 1739, and while they were there, they started to pay attention to corpses being exhumed and killed again in the area. And we see that in the story. They dig up the bodies and then they chop off their heads and burn them or they stake them, various things. And a lot of these reports were made by officers of the law and other respected people like Flukinger, uh, an army medical officer, who claimed to have seen it, and particularly to have seen the exhumation and the staking or beheading part. Burning the corpse is often the way to lay it. Uh, Generally speaking, in Roman Catholic or Orthodox, and this would be Serbian Orthodox religion, that would be the religion in the area, in either of those religious traditions, um, the body is sacrosanct because uh, the idea is everybody will rise again at the second coming bodily. 
So you have to have a body in order to do that. So they will avoid cremation unless the person appears to be a vampire, in which case you can get rid of them entirely, lay them to rest completely by burning the body. Vampires often attack their close friends and family. And of course, many of them died of plague. So you can obviously see, presumably, the, the poor family are one by one getting infected and dying of plague. But basically, as these Austrian officers were investigating these cases and checking villages for plague and seeing these exhumations, they would then write letters or memoirs reporting vampire stories from Eastern Europe and people visiting Austria would then report them back as well from about the late 17th century onwards. Augustin Calme reports on them as a new phenomenon in 1751, where he says this is a, a new thing that has been discovered in Eastern Europe. Not new to the Eastern Europeans, but new to the Western Europeans writing about it. And then there was this apparent, inverted commas, vampire epidemic in Serbia, 1725 to 32, where there are just lots of cases of this kind of thing happening. So basically, through most of the 18th century, uh, Western Europeans are becoming more and more familiar with the vampire folklore and the stories of vampires from Eastern Europe and of these incidents where people are digging up bodies and, and killing them again to get rid of vampires. And then right at the end of the 18th century and into the beginning of the 19th, that is when we get um, literature starting to deal with vampires and they sort of pass into uh, literature and become monsters in works of literature as well as folklore. In 1797, Goethe writes Die Braut von Corinth, The Bride of Corinth, uh, which is a vampire story. Uh, Robert Southey's 1801 poem Thalaba the Destroyer um, is also dealing with vampirism and both Percy Shelley and later Cardinal Newman were fans of that one. And most famously Polidori's 1816 story The Vampire, uh, which was inspired by a poem and a fragment of a novel written by Byron. So there's been a lot of work done on this by Paul Barber, who has done a ton of work pointing out that an awful lot of the things that these people report seeing, they probably did see. So people are reporting on the exhumations and the behaviour of the body. So Barber worked with uh, forensic pathologists and looked into what happens to dead bodies. And we think we know, and this is what leads to the stories, basically. Um, <clears throat> we think we know what happens to a dead body. It gets rigor mortis, and then it rots. And basically, Barber, by talking to uh, experts in pathology, talked about, well, it's not as simple as that. <laughs> we think it is, uh, but if a body is not properly buried or in various different circumstances, weather, climate, geography, um, bodies do not kind of go through this simple linear process that a lot of us think they do. And that they will generally go through a phase after rigor mortis, which will fade relatively quickly and the body will go loose again. And then they usually bloat and they get filled with blood um, and the blood can trickle out of the mouth. You might even get a groan when you stake them if there's air in the bloated body. And even the tendency of vampires to have died by murder, suicide or plague might have a physical effect on the corpse, um, as well as obviously plague infecting their relatives potentially, um, that uh, the corpse may decay differently if the body is full of infection um, or if it has died particularly violently 
or if it has been buried particularly quickly. So we saw one of the bodies had not been buried properly, had been disturbed by animals. Animals eating the body will then have an impact on the way the body decays and it also makes it more likely for the body to be closer to the surface and for the earth on the grave to look disturbed. And visitations at night are also a common theme and in that case... Um, Stanaka's experience could be a form of sleep paralysis informed by ideas about vampires that are all around her. So basically, I thoroughly recommend looking at Barber's work. It's really, really interesting. And I've summarised it very, very briefly because I am not an expert on the decomposition of human bodies. And if I try and do it off the top of my head, I will forget the details or get them wrong. So I would thoroughly recommend looking up what Paul Barber has done on it. Um, but basically, what it boils down to is when these reports talk about these exhumations, they're not lying. And I think this is something, my students will know this is a pet peeve with me. There's a tendency among historians nowadays to doubt everything we read. And that can be very healthy. We shouldn't just blindly believe everything we read. People don't remember things properly. People lie. <laughs> People misunderstand things. Um, we shouldn't just take everything we read at face value. But modern history has gone quite far the other way, to the point of barely believing anything anybody writes down <laughs> or says they've seen. And even in this case, there are small inconsistencies within the text. It's not a perfect record. But I do think maybe we go too far sometimes in not believing what people are telling us. Now, we don't think they're vampires. Of course, <laughs> no one is suggesting that these are really vampires. But the observed... Uh, behaviour of the corpses, the blood in the chest cavity, the fact that they don't look decayed. Um, Barber suggests that the nails is not that they've continued growing, but that the skin has sloughed back from the nails, which is part of the process of decomposition, and it makes the nails look longer, so it looks as though they're still growing. So all of these physical characteristics of these dead bodies, there's no need to disbelieve what people say they saw. We interpret it differently. We think it's part of the process of decomposition and it's affected by the weather, the climate, how they've been buried, what the person died of in the first place, all of these various factors. But just because it's not a vampire doesn't mean they didn't see what they say they saw. Now, obviously, it's harder to apply that to things like uh, Stanica's experience waking up in the night, although say sleep paralysis would be an explanation of that. But basically, um, something was happening but it was probably more to do with improper burials, particular diseases um, and particular practices ending up with um, people coming across these bodies uh, that were at a stage of decomposition that people were not familiar with and that looked extremely dramatic to look at uh, and could even potentially produce a groan when you stake them. So Paul Barber's book is Vampires, Burial and Death, Folklore and Reality. And not only does he go into all of that in uh, plenty of detail, but it also includes the complete English translation of Johannes Flukinger's Visum et Repertum, which means seen and discovered, and is his report that he made where he described all this. If you're interested in the process of decomposition of dead bodies in general, uh, Richard Shepard's memoir Unnatural Causes also has some fascinating details. He's a pathologist uh, and his memoir has loads of fascinating detail. I also used uh, Claudia Maya Veselinovic's Death and Funeral Customs in Serbia paper on academia.edu. If you have access to JSTOR, uh, Barber also, before the book, wrote uh, an article where you can read uh, sort of the same ideas but shorter and quicker. Um, Forensic Pathology and the European Vampire in Journal of Folklore Research, Volume 24. 
I also made use of The History of the Word Vampire by Katerina M. Wilson, Journal of the History of Ideas, Volume 46. Romanian Werewolves, Seasons, Ritual Cycles by Harry Sen in Folklore, Volume 93. The Word Vampire, Its Slavonic Form and Origin by Brian Cooper in Journal of Slavic Linguistics, Volume 13. Was the Vampire of the 18th Century a Unique Type of Undead Corpse by G. David Keyworth in Folklore, Volume 117. And Emotional Practice and Bodily Performance in Early Modern Vampire Literature by Stephen Gordon in Preternature, Volume 6. So if you have access to JSTOR, lots to read there. Uh, this not being my specialist area, I had to do lots and lots of research uh, on this one. So I have just started a new TikTok channel. My username is at ClassicalJG, where I've started reading short excerpts from the original sources, uh, from texts that I've used on the podcast, but also some texts where I probably won't do a full podcast story on them, uh, usually because there isn't really enough to make a complete story with a beginning, middle and end out of, or because it's just too weird in some cases, and I'm looking at you, Phlegon of Trolleys. Um, so if you're interested, head on over there. I'm also posting a few bits and pieces on current British ghost folklore, and I'm planning to add some fiction reviews as well, but I'm a slow reader, so those will be uh, a little bit more intermittent. The next episode of Creepy Classics will be the Christmas one, so it'll be something appropriate to the season, probably something Scandinavian set around Yule, but I haven't chosen a story yet, so you'll have to wait and see. Um, and then we will be back after that again in February with something new. Thank you for listening. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. <laughs>